Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of drugs, abuse, and violent murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On the evening of February 16, 1980, Detective Alan Sylvia sat nervously beneath a lurid painting of Satan. He couldn't believe he was investigating a homicide involving a satanic cult. Looking around the room at the dingy apartment, he felt a rising sense of dread. The detective waited nervously for the religious service to start. A dozen worshippers, together with Detective Sylvia and his partner, arranged themselves in a circle. Candles cast bizarre shadows across the room. One individual sat in the middle of the group, leading the worshippers through a chant of, Hail Satan! Hail Satan! The chant went on for some time, with the leader's voice becoming more and more intense. Some people swayed, others mumbled under their breath. For several moments, Detective Sylvia heard a man make incoherent noises, as though he were speaking in tongues. Eventually, the chanting died down, and the service abruptly ended. As people began to filter into the kitchen to eat, Sylvia heard a man in a nearby bedroom speaking in a low, guttural voice. The voice said, Satan will have his toll. When Sylvia looked into the room, he felt the hair stand up on the back of his neck. The speaker had not been a man. Rather, the deep, unsettling voice he'd heard had come from the mouth of 17-year-old Robin Murphy. Robin was looming over a young sex worker who was sitting wide-eyed on the bed. The girl was practically cowering in fear. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a ParCast original. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Cults for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Cults in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. 
And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Today, we're continuing our look at the Fall River Satanic Cult, which was implicated in a series of murders in 1979 and 1980. Last week, we explored the murder of Doreen Levesque and the key figures in the cult, Carl Drew and Robin Murphy. This week, we'll dive into the subsequent murders and the investigation that exposed the cult and its activities to the world. In late October of 1979, Fall River, Massachusetts was in turmoil. State and local police were struggling to investigate the death of Doreen Levesque, a teenage girl who was murdered at a local high school. Evidence suggested she had been tortured prior to her death by stoning, an archaic and disturbing ritualistic practice. Police had been unable to pinpoint any suspects, but many suspicions were aimed at a local satanic cult. The unnamed cult was mostly made up of sex workers and pimps who met regularly to worship Satan. The true practices of the group were unknown to those outside of it, but members reportedly engaged in animal and human sacrifices. They frequently invoked the name of Satan to threaten others with otherworldly retribution. Members believed that Satan, rather than God, was the true savior. He was the bringer of light and enlightenment. To them, physical pleasure through sex, drugs, and alcohol was Satan's gift that was preferable to some mystical afterlife that may or may not really exist. While the investigation into the cult was ongoing, it proceeded slowly. There was no one who was willing to tell police what really went on at the gatherings. So state trooper Lloyd Wheaton was surprised to get an unsolicited call from one of the cult members, Andy Maltese. Maltese was a drug addict, petty thief, and convicted sex criminal. Wheaton couldn't imagine why the man was calling him at home on a weeknight. Andy's voice sounded dreamy on the phone. To Wheaton, Andy sounded high. The trooper finally cut to the chase and asked Andy what he wanted. And that was when Maltese dropped a bombshell. He told Wheaton he knew something about the recent murder of Doreen Levesque and wanted to be put in contact with the investigator. Wheaton had serious doubts that Maltese had useful information, but he agreed to put Andy in touch with the state detective who was investigating the case. Wheaton's skepticism was well-founded. Andy Maltese was a familiar figure to the police in Fall River. He and his ex-girlfriend, Barbara Raposa, were known Satan worshipers who were involved with the Bedford Street Satanic cult. Like the other women in the cult, Barbara worked in the sex trade. Andy had begun seeing her when she was just a teenager. He would later claim to have fathered her son, Eric, though the claim was never substantiated. Regardless, Barbara had recently dumped Andy and had started seeing someone else. After his initial call to Wheaton, Maltese proved difficult for the state investigator to reach. He never seemed to be home. It wasn't until around the last week of November 1979 that they finally met in person. Maltese rambled for quite some time about his past and his ex-girlfriend. He seemed intent on letting the detectives know that he was no longer a Satanist. He'd become a born-again Christian and had left the Satanic cult. 
He was even armed with a Bible to prove it. He stated, Once I worshipped Satan, but now I worship Jesus. Investigators could tell right away that Andy was delusional. He told investigators that God spoke to him on a regular basis. He also claimed to be a psychic. The police couldn't decide if he was suffering from a legitimate mental illness and if he posed a threat to himself or others. Andy did, in fact, show many symptoms of psychosis. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Doctors define psychosis as an inability to tell what is real and what's not. Delusions and hallucinations are common during psychotic episodes. These episodes can be caused by existing mental illnesses, like schizophrenia or even sleep deprivation. But they can also be caused by drugs, and Andy was known to have a long history of drug abuse. According to a study led by Dr. Jennifer H. Barnett of the University of Cambridge, more than half of all people diagnosed with psychosis are drug abusers. Despite Andy's apparent mental issues, he still provided police with a useful lead. He told them that while he didn't personally know anything, he knew two people who did. Their names were Robin Murphy and Karen Marsden. Robin was 17 years old in late 1979 and had already been on the streets for several years. She'd worked in the sex trade and also pimped for other women. She was streetwise and known to be a master manipulator. Andy had been supplying her with drugs and alcohol and sexually abusing her since she was 11 years old. Her girlfriend, Karen Marsden, was three years older, but Robin was the dominant one in their relationship. Robin was openly unfaithful, having casual flings and pursuing other partners. Karen had a son living with a local foster family and had fallen into sex work because of her drug addictions. A week after his first meeting with investigators, Andy drove Robin and Karen to meet with Paul Fitzgerald, the lead detective working for the state police. They would never have come on their own, so Andy lied and said the police wanted their help with something else. When Fitzgerald asked them what they knew about the murder, Karen Marsden was taken off guard and immediately blurted out, Carl Drew killed Doreen Levesque. Carl Drew was another familiar figure to police. He was a pimp in the Bedford Street district of Fall River. He'd been in and out of jail on several occasions and had once been accused of murder, though the charges had ultimately been dropped. He was also a key figure in the local satanic cult and was rumored to have been the one who started it. After Karen claimed that Carl Drew killed Doreen, Detective Fitzgerald pressed her for more information. But Karen was unwilling to give him much of anything else. She continually called him the devil, as though he were truly Satan himself. She went so far as to tell the detective, if you find me dead, Carl Drew did it. Robin, on the other hand, said she didn't know anything about the murder. She claimed to have no idea what Karen was talking about. Fitzgerald's hands were tied. He needed more information if he was going to try to build a case around Carl Drew, particularly since there wasn't a shred of evidence linking Carl to the murder. Though he heard several more times from Karen Marsden about her fears of Carl Drew, Fitzgerald never got any more substantive information from her. Andy, however, was a different story. 
He continued to make regular calls to Fitzgerald's office throughout December and January, checking up on the case and offering useless information. He rambled about his newfound Christianity and seemed to be under the delusion that he was working for the police. Andy also started pestering Fitzgerald and other state police officials about his ex-girlfriend, Barbara Raposa. He claimed she'd disappeared in November and he hadn't seen her since. He even filed a missing persons report, though no one took it very seriously. Police were more concerned with solving the Levesque case. Sex workers and drug addicts ran off or disappeared all the time. Fitzgerald figured Barbara was with her new boyfriend. But all that changed on Saturday, January 26, 1980. It was a cold winter day in Massachusetts, but the sky was bright and sunny. That afternoon, a local hunter took his retriever dogs out for a training session in Fall River. They went to an empty, overgrown field behind a printing factory on the southern edge of town. There, his dogs came across a corpse in the tall grass. The woman was nude from the waist down, and her hands had been bound. Her body was badly decomposed, and her head and face had been crushed. Bloody cinder blocks lay nearby, and there were flecks of cement in her hair. Investigators showed up within the hour. It was immediately clear that the woman had been sexually assaulted before her murder. Within a few hours, police identified her as 19-year-old Barbara Raposa, Andy's ex-girlfriend. Andy was brought in for questioning by Detective Sylvia of the local Fall River Police. For no apparent reason, he showed up wearing a western shirt and cowboy boots. He had a huge belt buckle that said Texas in block letters and was carrying a Bible with him. Sylvia was surprised, to say the least. He had no idea Andy was supposedly a born-again Christian. In fact, he knew nothing about Andy's dealings with the state police and the murder of Doreen Levesque. Communication between law enforcement departments at that time wasn't always good. Sylvia knew only that Andy had reported Barbara Raposa missing, and now she turned up dead. Andy told Sylvia that he had been working undercover for the state police and that Detective Paul Fitzgerald would soon arrive to take over the case. He refused to talk to Sylvia about Barbara. Andy's erratic behavior made it clear to Sylvia he was mentally ill, and he strongly suspected this unstable man was responsible for Barbara's death. But Detective Fitzgerald and the state police disagreed. Fitzgerald thought that Andy was eccentric, but he didn't think he was capable of murder. He was ultimately released without providing any new information. Fitzgerald instead brought in Dave Cowan for questioning. Cowan was Barbara's new boyfriend and the last person known to have seen her alive. Cowan told the state police that on the night Barbara disappeared, they went to dinner and then she went out to work the streets. He claimed to have never seen her again after that. If Cowan was telling the truth, it meant the police had little to go on. There had been an apparent ritualistic aspect to Doreen Levesque's killing. It appeared she'd been stoned to death. Barbara's murder did not have the same ritualistic properties, but there were numerous other similarities. Both women were young sex workers. Both had been found nude from the waist down. Both were bound by the hands. Both were killed outside and had been bludgeoned in a murderous rage. 
Though Karen Marsden had pointed the finger at Carl Drew, the one person who seemed to be connected to both killings was Andy Maltese. And whether he claimed to have left the satanic cult or not, police believed he had participated in many violent rituals over the years. Luckily for authorities, Andy himself would provide them a break on February 5, 1980. That morning, Andy called Detective Fitzgerald in his imagined role as an assistant to the investigation. Andy told Fitzgerald he now knew everything. He knew how Barbara had died. When Fitzgerald asked him how he knew, Andy told him, I had a dream last night. Coming up, we'll hear about the bizarre dream that Andy claimed was a psychic vision of Barbara Repose's brutal murder. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Now, back to the story. In late January 1980, the severely beaten body of sex worker Barbara Raposa was found in a field behind a printing factory. Police suspected either Barbara's current boyfriend, Dave Cowan, or her unstable ex, former Satanist Andy Maltese, of committing the murder. Ten days after her body was discovered, Andy called police and told them he knew what had happened to her because he'd seen it all in a psychic dream. Police immediately brought Andy to the station to hear his story. He told them that in his dream, he was floating above the field where Barbara had been murdered. Andy said he watched as a heavy-set man in a leather jacket beat Barbara with a rock. Barbara was lying on the ground, and the assailant was squatting near her head. One of the investigators showed Andy a picture of the field where the murder took place. He asked Andy to mark the spot where he saw the murder occurring. He put an X right over the place where the body had been found by the hunting dogs. Andy told detectives he couldn't see the man's face clearly and didn't know who he was. Barbara was screaming, calling out to Andy to help her, as though she could see him there, floating in the trees above the field. In the dream, he was helpless to intervene. He couldn't move. He heard the assailant telling her that Andy wouldn't help her anymore. Near the end of the interview, Andy changed his story slightly by saying that the murder weapon hadn't been a rock after all, but a piece of concrete. This detail had not been released to the press. Andy displayed the symptoms of someone who's suffering from a delusion of grandeur. This is a specific kind of delusion in which the sufferer falsely believes they have special abilities or important connections to famous people. It's frequently seen in those suffering from schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, but it can also be present in drug addicts. Clinical psychologist Rebecca Knowles has stated, 
Grandiose delusions are found across a wide range of psychiatric conditions, including a substantial proportion of patients with substance abuse disorders. Andy's long history of drug abuse may have predisposed him to such delusions. During his time in the satanic cult, he'd been able to use claims of psychic powers and mystic visions as a way to manipulate people. He may have assumed he could control police in the same way. Unfortunately for him, his psychic act functioned as little more than a confession in the eyes of police. On February 7, 1980, Andy was arrested at his home where he lived with his mother. He was arraigned the following day for the murder of Barbara Raposa. Investigators were eager to close the case and, if possible, tie Andy to the Doreen Levesque murder as well. The similarities in the two murders gave investigators hope that they now had the perpetrator of both crimes behind bars. Unfortunately, any lingering hopes of a clean wrap-up were soon shattered. On the afternoon of February 8, 1980, Fall River Police Detective Alan Sylvia got a phone call from Karen Marsden, whom he had become acquainted with about a week earlier. He'd met her during his investigations at Harbor Terrace, the apartment complex where he'd been interviewing sex workers in the Doreen Levesque case. In their past interviews, Karen had only told him she was terrified of Carl Drew. She regularly referred to him as the devil. At this point in the investigation, Sylvia knew nothing about Karen's interactions with state police detective Paul Fitzgerald. It had been back in December that she'd told Fitzgerald that Carl Drew had killed Doreen. Now, she had called local police and made the same claims. In the few days Sylvia had known her, Karen had begun expressing a growing fear of Robin Murphy, as well as Carl Drew. She told Sylvia that several months earlier, Robin had taken her and another sex worker named Carol Fletcher to a remote spot in the deep woods outside of Fall River. After parking the car in a secluded spot, Robin led Karen and Carol to a small clearing in the woods. There was a pond nearby. The water inside was green and covered with algae. Near two trees was a stone structure that Robin told them was an altar. There were pentagrams etched into some of the trees and other unfamiliar symbols. This, according to Robin, was where satanic rituals were held. At normal gatherings, animals were sacrificed on the altar and the carcasses thrown into the water. But Robin claimed that every month on the full moon, at a special ritual, a human being was sacrificed. The worshippers would get high, have sex, and then gather in a circle to worship and sacrifice to Satan. It was here, Robin told the women, that Carl Drew would kill them if they talked to police. He would inject battery acid into their veins and sacrifice their souls to the devil. Upon hearing this account, Detective Sylvia doubted Carl had really made such a threat. It was all too ridiculous. It seemed more likely that Robin was using Karen's fear of Carl to manipulate her. Detective Sylvia was starting to believe that Robin knew more about the murders than she was letting on. Even so, Sylvia continued to meet with Karen and tried to get her to open up about what she knew. But the interview on February 8th proved no different than the others. 
Karen expressed fear for her son and family and insisted that there was nothing the police could do to protect her. She stated, I have a little boy. I have a grandmother and a mother and a father. You can't put everyone I know in protective custody. Carl and Robin would get to her one way or the other, even if it meant harming her loved ones. In tears, she finally asked Detective Sylvia to drop her off at a local Catholic church. Sylvia dropped her off in front of the stone refectory at St. Mary's Cathedral, a few blocks away from the Bedford Street Red Light District. A priest opened the door and Karen disappeared inside. The following day, February 9, 1980, a phone call came into the Fall River Police Station. It was Robin Murphy. She was upset and had something she wanted to get off her chest. Sylvia and his colleagues immediately went to meet her at Harbor Terrace, the housing project where she frequently stayed. They'd been to this apartment before. It belonged to Robin's occasional girlfriend, Sunny Sparta, and it was where the cult often gathered to worship during the cold months. They found Robin, high and smelling of alcohol, sitting under the leering portrait of Satan on the wall. The detectives immediately noticed that Robin wasn't her normal self, and not just because she was under the influence. She seemed tense and upset, a mood completely different from the aura of cool composure she normally gave off. She quickly got to the point, saying, I've got to get this off my chest. I was there when Andy killed Barbara. Robin told detectives that Andy killed Barbara because she had been seeing Dave Cowan. Though it was an extreme example, this was in keeping with Andy's typical behavior. When he and Robin had been together in prior years, he'd frequently beaten her if she dated other men. Evidence gathered by researchers at the National Domestic Violence Hotline suggests that Andy's behavior is not unusual. Abuse rarely gets better over time. Instead, it tends to worsen, often leading to serious injuries and, in extreme cases, even death. Robin went on to tell investigators that she called Andy on the night of November 7th to pick her up at a restaurant and give her a ride to her mother's house. After he picked her up, he told her Barbara had just called for a ride, too. Andy and Robin went to get Barbara. On the drive over, Andy told Robin that he planned to kill Barbara because she was dating someone else. Robin took this information in stride, unsure whether he was being serious or just letting off steam. When Barbara got into the car, Robin moved to the back seat. Andy lit a joint and passed it around. According to Robin, Barbara was annoyed that Robin was there. She and Barbara began arguing about it, and punches were thrown as the two women fought across the seats. Robin eventually dragged Barbara into the back seat where their struggle continued. Andy pulled the car up behind a printing factory, came around to the back seat, and told Barbara to get out. Barbara took off her pants, apparently preparing for sex. She then laid down on a coat in the grass while Andy grabbed several sex toys from the trunk of his car. Robin remained in the car listening to the radio while the two had sex. She testified that at one point, Andy used one of his sex toys on Barbara. It's not clear from her testimony whether this was consensual or not. If it wasn't, it certainly wouldn't have been the first time Andy had sexually abused someone. Andy was known to be a sexual sadist. 
that is, someone who derives sexual pleasure from causing psychological or physical pain to others. While milder forms of sadomasochism between consenting adults is considered normal, when those activities escalate, problems occur. According to Dr. George R. Brown, professor of psychiatry at East Tennessee State University, sexual sadism disorder occurs when sadistic urges cause distress or harm, or when such urges are acted on in a non-consenting manner. Andy Maltese liked to engage in behavior like this, combining it with a tendency to seek out vulnerable, underage girls. His brutal relationship with Robin Murphy began when she was only 11, and he had previously done time for sexually assaulting two 15-year-old girls. Shortly after observing Andy and Barbara having sex, Robin heard them begin to argue. She saw Andy lift what she thought was a rock and begin to beat Barbara with it. When Andy came back to the car, he got in the driver's seat and drove Robin home. Robin told investigators that she had waited until now to say anything because she'd been terrified of Andy. Now that he was in custody, she felt more confident coming forward. But she told investigators she was still scared for her safety. She feared Andy might put out a hit on her from inside prison. As a result, police offered to put her in protective custody. With her testimony against Andy Maltese, she was now the government's star witness. They put her up in a hotel and checked in with her twice a day. The same day that Robin told police about her presence at the murder of Barbara Raposa, the Fall River Police Department got a call from an older woman. She told the officer on the phone that her granddaughter was missing. The granddaughter's name was Karen Marsden. Up next, we'll see how the disappearance of Karen Marsden made investigators rethink everything. This episode is brought to you by the Weather Channel. The key to solving any mystery? Smart decisions based on the facts. In the case of the weather's effect on your well-being, turn to the Weather Channel app. It clues you in on how weather shapes your mood, health, and productivity with insights built on reliable forecast data to help you thrive. Because mystery belongs in true crime, not weather. Be a force of nature with the Weather Channel app. Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Now, back to the story. On February 9, 1980, investigators in Fall River, Massachusetts, got a call that Karen Marsden had gone missing. Police had been regularly meeting with Karen Marsden for information on the murder of Doreen Levesque. Karen had been unwilling to talk due to her fear of her former pimp, 25-year-old Carl Drew. Carl Drew was a prominent member of a local satanic cult, along with 17-year-old Robin Murphy. Police were now beginning to believe that Robin played a bigger role in the cult and the murders than they first thought. As soon as detectives learned that Karen was missing, they feared the worst. 
Detective Sylvia and his colleagues conducted interviews with Karen's friends and associates, trying to find some clue as to her disappearance. This time, they brought Carl Drew in and questioned him. He cooperated and agreed to let the police photograph his tattoos, including the Satan heads on his arm and chest. He calmly told Sylvia he'd last seen Karen several hours after Sylvia had dropped her off at the church. Carl said he'd been standing on a street corner and she had driven by with Robin Murphy and Carol Fletcher. He didn't see them again after that. Sylvia was forced to let Carl go, but he and his partner, Paul Carey, spent a lot of time at the Harbor Terrace Apartments in the week following Karen's disappearance. They talked to several sex workers there and spent a lot of time interviewing Sonny Sparta, who was likely a madam and stayed in the housing project where the satanic cult regularly met. It was thanks to these interviews that local police found themselves at a satanic worship service on the night of February 16th. Robin Murphy and Carl Drew were among the dozen or so worshippers at Sonny's apartment that night. Though Robin was now in protective custody as the state's star witness against Andy Maltese, she still had the freedom to come and go as she pleased. Sonny had told Sylvia and Carrie that members of the cult met in her apartment in the winter or out in the nearby woods during the warmer months. Their services were, for them, just like going to church. They worshipped Satan. They attempted to conjure him, to be inspired or guided by him. The services could sometimes go on for an hour or more. It was after that disappointingly brief service in Sonny's apartment that Sylvia heard Robin speak in an otherworldly voice, stating, Satan will have his toll. Though it made the hairs stand up on the back of his neck, Sylvia wrote off her ability to change her voice as a trick she must have practiced. As the days passed, Sylvia interviewed a number of additional witnesses who testified they heard Carl Drew talk about Satan and threaten people with Satan's vengeance. One of these witnesses was Carol Fletcher, who had worked for Carl and had been with Karen the night Robin drove them out to the sacrifice site in the woods. Others that Sylvia interviewed pointed the finger toward Robin Murphy. Both Sonny Sparta and a young sex worker named Terry told detectives that Robin had admitted to killing Karen Marsden. Yet another witness told police that he heard Robin say she'd been present at Doreen Levesque's killing. With this bit of testimony, Robin was now connected to both known murders and to Karen's disappearance. The local DA sent Robin to Dallas, Texas for safekeeping under the guise of her police protection in the Raposa case. But the real reason was to keep her from tampering with any witnesses in the Karen Marsden case. On April 13, 1980, the search for Karen ended in horror. The top half of a skull, called a calvarium, was found on some rural land in nearby Westport, Massachusetts around 10 miles south of Fall River. The rest of the scene was just as horrifying. Pieces of clothing and several clumps of hair pulled out by the roots were also discovered. Three carcasses of dead cats were lined up geometrically next to the body. The cats had been savagely disemboweled. Their entrails were scattered among three carefully placed stones, which formed a triangle. But nothing was as disturbing as the skull. It was missing the jaw and facial bones, 
but it was still partially covered with skin. Hairs from Karen's hairbrush were matched to hairs found at the crime scene. Sylvia recognized the pieces of clothing as those Karen was wearing the night he dropped her off at the church. In time, skull x-rays taken of Karen were used to identify the calvarium as belonging to Karen Marsden. While the crime scene was still being investigated, Robin Murphy was in Texas under witness protection as the key witness in the murder of Barbara Raposa. But while she was there, she made a fateful phone call back home to her friend, Sonny Sparta. Little did she know, police were monitoring the call and were actually sitting in the room with Sonny when Karen rang. During the call, Robin admitted to killing Karen Marsden. With the taped confession, Fall River investigators felt increasingly confident that they could build a case around Robin Murphy. When confronted with the evidence, Robin knew she was cornered. She decided it was time to make a deal. Robin told police that on the night Doreen Levesque was killed back in October of 1979, she was with Carl Drew and another man named Willie Smith. Finding Doreen on a corner, they stopped to pick her up. Though Robin had managed to work as a freelancer on Bedford Street, she was an exception to the rule. The pimps in the area, especially Carl Drew, didn't normally allow sex workers to work the streets unless they had a pimp. If you wanted to cash in on the Bedford Street market, you had to be working for someone. After picking up Doreen, Carl tried to persuade her to work for him instead of being a freelancer. She refused, saying she preferred to work alone. Carl threatened her, promising that Satan always got what was due to him. He eventually reached into the back seat and hit her in the face. After the slap, Doreen's mouth was bleeding and she began to cry. Carl finally asked her again if she would work for him. Despite her injury, she remained defiant. That, according to Robin, was her fatal mistake. After she refused him for the final time, Carl drove to the local high school. He drove around to the rear and pulled up near the bleachers away from the security lights. Carl and Willie took Doreen out of the back seat and carried her out of sight. Robin claimed she remained in the car and never saw what happened afterward. They were gone for 10 minutes. When they returned, Robin said Willie was carrying Doreen's shoes. She told police that this was part of the satanic ritual, taking something that belonged to the person whose soul was offered to the devil. Police were dumbfounded at the casual brutality of the account. But Robin wasn't done. After finishing her story about Doreen, she turned to the murder of Karen Marsden. On the night Karen Marsden disappeared, she and Robin went to visit Karen's son, JJ, at his foster home. Afterward, Carol Fletcher picked them up, and they went to look for Carol's boyfriend and pimp, a man named Carl Davis. When they finally found him, he was with Carl Drew. The two men got into the car, and Carol drove off. Following instructions from her boyfriend, Carol drove south toward Westport, Massachusetts, an area that was rural and heavily wooded. Driving down a dark lane, Carol stopped the car and turned off the ignition. In the back seat, Carl told Karen that her time had come. He'd warned her not to talk to police, but she'd done it anyway. Karen, finding a rare inner strength, 
told Carl she wasn't afraid of him and that God would save her. Carl Drew responded, God can't help you. The only one here is Satan. Robin claimed that everything she did was at the insistence of Carl Drew. She dragged Karen out of the car by her hair and hit her several times, drawing blood. Then, holding her by the neck, she dragged her to a small clearing in the woods. Everyone, including Carol and her boyfriend, Carl Davis, took rocks and threw them at Karen. She was screaming, but in the deep woods, there was no one to hear her cries. Robin then held Karen by the neck, while Carl Drew severed her hand with a large knife. Karen was barely conscious now, but she was still groaning. Carl instructed Robin to perform a sex act on Karen. Fearing he'd turn his rage on her, Robin complied. Robin testified that Carl next told her to cut Karen's throat. Robin did the deed, and then Carl removed the head. Then he forced Robin to pull out all the hair before finally kicking the head around like a soccer ball. Next, Carl knelt beside the headless body and carved a large X across the torso, from shoulder to hip. As he did it, he chanted in a guttural voice, offering Karen's soul to Satan. Then he rubbed his finger in Karen's blood and used it to mark an X on Robin's forehead. He told her, now you're one of us. After the gruesome act was over and the group drove back to Fall River, Carol dropped Robin off at Harbor Terrace. Robin went into Sunny Sparta's apartment and ate dinner before going to bed. After Robin told police what she knew, she cut a deal with prosecutors. After that, things began to move very quickly in the investigation. Carl Drew was arrested, and other witnesses began to come forward, saying they no longer feared talking to police. The first person to go on trial was Andy Maltese in January of 1981. The trial only lasted a few days, with Robin as the star witness. He was quickly convicted of murdering Barbara Raposa and sentenced to life in prison. Carl Drew then went on trial in March and was convicted of murdering Karen Marsden. He, too, received a life sentence. During the trial, Carl testified that he was not a Satanist, had never attended a Satanic ritual, and knew nothing about Satanism on Bedford Street. It took two more years before Willie Smith went to trial. Smith was the man who assisted Carl in killing Doreen Levesque. But the day before the trial was set to begin in early 1983, Robin changed her story. She told the judge she'd made it all up. It wasn't her who had been present at the murder, but Karen Marsden. Without Robin's testimony against him, the state had no case against Willie Smith, and he was released. The Fall River Satanic cult seems to have collapsed after the main players all went to prison. There's no further mention of it after 1980. Furthermore, not only does Carl Drew maintain that he was never a Satanist, even Robin Murphy now claims that she made everything up to frame Carl. In 2004, she told the parole board that Karen told her Carl had killed some people, 
So Robin fabricated her entire testimony to get him off the streets. This recantation has not helped Carl Drew. Judges have determined the new accounts to be spurious and have instead upheld his original conviction. He remains in prison today, his appeals long ago exhausted. Robin Murphy was granted parole in 2004, but was brought back to prison in 2011 following a violation for associating with another ex-convict. She was recently denied another chance at parole. Andy Maltese's life sentence turned out to be short. He died in prison in 1987 after several strokes. Detective Alan Sylvia of the Fall River Police eventually retired from law enforcement and entered politics. He has been a member of the Massachusetts House of Representatives since 2012. Sylvia's account of having personally attended one of the services casts doubt on the claims of Robin Murphy and Carl Drew, who now say the Fall River satanic cult never existed at all. The murders of Doreen Levesque, Barbara Raposa, and Karen Marsden were a media sensation and gained national headlines. The case helped to fuel the so-called satanic panic that would reach its peak in the 1980s and early 1990s. Whether or not the Fall River cult was imaginary, the effect it had on American society was very real. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back with another episode next Tuesday. For more information on the Fall River Satanic Cult, amongst the many sources we used, we found Mortal Remains by Henry Scammell, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Cults, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Cults on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Cults in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast, and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Cults was written by Scott Christmas and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Mm-hmm.